Well, good morning, church and friends and guests. The Lord be with you. To prepare our hearts for worship this morning, I want to invite you to come with me on a little bit of an imaginative field trip this morning. About 10 days ago on a Wednesday night, the task of the night was to explain Advent to a group of middle school students, okay? So we lined them up from the youth center over there, the old sanctuary, and marched them over here into the sanctuary, a group of about 25 or 30 of them. They filled up the entire front row here. And then once they were in this space, we invited them to imagine a kind of visual timeline up here on stage. And off to this far side, we invited up one of their fearless leaders, Jacob Woodwike, the proud and loud father of seven, who stood up here. And every time we pointed to him, he would say, Merry Christmas. Okay. On the other end of our timeline, visual timeline for the students over here was Paulette Chaponnier. And whenever we pointed to her, she would say, she would sing, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then we told the students that in this space between, that's where in Advent we wait. So we asked the students, what do you do when you're waiting? And they offered up some common answers. They said, well, we sleep or play on my phone, pick my nose. Get angry because the line is so long, those types of things, which are pretty normal. Then we invited them to scoot up and sit on the very edge, the front edge of their seats, as if they're anticipating something wonderful. And we reminded them that in Advent in particular, we wait in a little different way. We wait with hope and peace and joy and love. And we are eagerly waiting and hoping for the day in which we can say, Merry Christmas, and he shall reign forever and ever. Today we get to do that again. This is the third Sunday of Advent, and we are gathering today in particular, waiting, waiting for the one who is to be born and the one who will be forevermore King of Kings, King of Nations in particular. So I invite you to stand, and we'll join our voices together for our call to worship. Please stand. And this is from Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Let's say it together. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. For you alone are holy. All the nations shall come and worship before you.
you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been taking part in this Advent chant where we start at an excited whisper and we ascend three times till we use our full and exuberant voice at the very end. We'll start the chant right after we complete the candle lighting liturgy. People of God, Christ has come and Christ will come again. We light the second candle of Advent in joy, anticipating Christ's second coming. O King of nations, Lord of all time and space, all, all, in love you formed us from the dust of the earth to co-create Reform, save, and restore us, we pray. For the, For the name, name of the one we know as ruler of all, Christ our Lord. Amen. O root of Jesse, reach deep down and stir up hope. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. O radiant dawn, dispel earth's darkness with, with sunrise of shalom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. O King of nations, unite our world in joy of your reign. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. O Emmanuel, child of promise, stay with us in love. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You may be seated.
Now may we turn our hearts to God in this season of Advent and bring to him the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, all that weighs heavily on our hearts, trusting that God is big enough with an abundance of love and mercy to hold all of our emotions as we follow in the ancient tradition of this prayer of lament. Let us pray. Lord God, in this bleak, bleak midwinter, all creation groans. We hear these groans in melting glaciers and extreme temperatures, in historic droughts and atmospheric rivers. We hear the groans of a planet suffering and species lost to extinction. O oh Lord, are we destined to the fires of Gehenna? What does that even mean? We hear Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted in the cries of the Palestinians and the Israelis. Poverty, starvation, never-ending wars. How long will this suffering continue? And then, Lord, there are the injustices in this land of plenty, racial disparities, marginalized communities, oppression, threats, rape, murder, gun violence, and partisan politics dividing families, neighbors, and communities. How long will you allow this madness to continue? How long will you allow evil to thrive? Dear God, we grieve those who call themselves Christians, but use the name of this sacred way of life as though it were only a prop, living their lives as though they never met Jesus. How long will you allow the loudest voices to warp your son's message? And then there is the quiet, raw grief of the newly empty chair, the loss of a loved one from illness, accident, or estrangement. Oh, how we long to be together again. The quiet, raw grief of a job loss, a grim diagnosis, unrequited love, and dashed hopes. How we long for what was and what could be. The quiet, raw grief of the loss of strength and vitality, the never-ending losses that come with aging, children growing up and moving away, the loss of abilities that prevent us from enjoying the hobbies, sports, and activities that once made us feel alive. The slow and steady progression of loved ones lost. First grandparents, then parents, spouses, siblings, friends, even children. And the loneliness each loss magnifies. How long will our cries fall on deaf ears? How long must our tears be our only comfort? How long must we live in the vaporous mist of memories? How long before you rouse yourself and act on our behalf? How long before you intervene? How long before you step in and make things right? Oh, Lord God, how long?
I believe, says the psalmist, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. If that prayer of lament or that song of lament has stirred something in you and you would like prayer with someone else or someone to come alongside of you, please note that we will have folks available to do just that underneath the cross at the end of the service today. And in the meantime, even through hard times and even as we do not yet understand or experience it all, we proclaim together that it is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ that we have peace with God and peace with one another. So friends, the peace of Christ be with you. Would you take a moment and share a sign of that peace with one another? Good morning, Fellowship Church. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. I have a couple of welcomes. One is welcome if you are visiting with us. We're glad that you're here, and we uh, have some connection cards that you can fill out if you wanna make yourself known to us. Uh, you can do that online or in person at the back. And I also have a little welcome back, because I see a lot of folks that are here that have uh, been off to school or maybe a child of the congregation who has wandered for a little while to some far-off place and come home for the holidays. And I'm tempted. I so want to make you stand up and all of us say, we're glad that you're here. But I won't do that, because I'll save you from the embarrassment but let's welcome uh, our friends that are back. Uh, we're glad that you're back uh, at Fellowship this week. Well, this is our final week before Christmas. And if uh, downtown yesterday was any indication, a few of you have some shopping to do because downtown was a buzzin' with shoppers uh, and you only have one week left uh, to get your Christmas presents. But we uh, at the church are also preparing for Christmas in a different way because next Sunday, we have a host of services that begin uh, on a Sunday morning like we always do at 9.30 in the morning with Advent 4 service and then Christmas Eve services at 4.30 and 11. They'll be somewhat similar but all unique. So you can come to all three of them, or you can uh, choose to join us for uh, one or two of them. Whatever, you, I mean, you pick your poison, or pick your, your, your blessing, if you will. <laughs> Just kidding, obviously. It's gonna be a delight to celebrate uh, Christ's uh, birth and coming uh, to this world the first time, and uh, as we wait for the second. We also, just to note, uh, next, the next Sunday is December 31st, uh, and we'll only have one service that week. We might not mention that next week at Christmas Eve, but that'll be a 9.30 only service on December 31st as well. This time of year is uh, uh, common, you might say, to look back with gratitude, but also anticipate the future as we turn the calendar year. Uh, and as we do that uh, at Fellowship Church, uh, we wanna take a moment right today just to say thanks be to God uh, for the immersed Bible study that has been just a, a spurring of the spirit uh, this fall. And we had over 100 people taken part in the immersed Bible study. And we are so grateful for this thing uh, that people have been taking part in, uh, and in fact, there's a, one, a handful, a number of people, maybe that have read through the whole New Testament for the first time in this semester, uh, and we're grateful uh, for uh, the ways in which God has used the Immersed Bible Study this uh, past fall, and we also anticipate uh, joining with another book, and you can jump in uh, in, in mid-January, join us for our next book that will be marching our way through another part of the Bible. Uh, you can do that through the Church Center app. If you know me, you know that I uh, sometimes have a little bit of a cheapskate tendency. I'm kind of a Dutch guy, I don't wanna spend a lot of money, so uh, in November and December, when the credit card just gets swiped and swiped and swiped and swiped, there's something sometimes inside of me that's like, can we just spend a little bit less money right now? 
But I uh, oftentimes in this season also can take a pause and remember that we are uh, spending a little bit extra right now in an effort to bless other folks, to give generously to those that we love and that we care about uh, as a way to express uh, a gratitude uh, and appreciation for the loving relationship that we have with one another. And it's in moments like this that I often remember that, or try to remember, maybe is a better way of saying it, that God so generously gave of himself. And that's why we do that thing where we give gifts in this, in this season because God sent his own son into this world, generously giving of himself for our sake. And so whenever at the end of the year we consider giving uh, to charities that we uh, appreciate the work that God is doing through them or even our tithes and offerings to the church, we do so uh, mimicking our God who gave so generously to us. You can do that at Fellowship Church with the offering bowls at the back of the sanctuary or by giving online. The children, uh, ages three through eighth grade, are gonna be dismissed while we sing the next song. Uh, I think I, just a special note that the middle schoolers are even having another party as well, so they get Sunday school and a party too. So uh, that's a special treat for them, but uh, they'll be dismissed while we uh, sing the song. Please stand and join me in the song. You know, I gotta say, Pastor Nate, instead of pick your poison, is it maybe choose your own adventure? I just thought of that, so. All right, well, today is the, <laughs> that was for <Wow>. free. <laughs> Wait, turn Darren's mic off. <laughs> uh, we lit the third candle in joy, um, and so it was appropriate that this morning, even alongside Lament, that we sing with joy, because we wait with joy in anticipation for Christ to make all things right. Let's sing together.
pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather together in your name, to sing to you, to lift our prayers and laments to you, to extend peace to one another in your name, and to study the scriptures this morning. As we turn toward those scriptures this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear, and yet you would open our hearts that we might love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. Uh, if I have not yet met you, my name is Tiara. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, this morning, we are in the third week of a series that we've been calling uh, O Antiphons. <clears throat> Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what Reverend Skipper affectionately referred to as the nicknames of Jesus. Our first week, we looked at Christ as the root of Jesse. Uh, last week, we looked at Christ as the radiant dawn. And this morning, we're going to look at Christ as the king of nations. In Isaiah 11, Jesus is the signal uh, to the peoples of the earth, the one of whom the nations will come and inquire. In Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the one who upholds the cosmos by the word of his power. Uh, Jesus is the king of the cosmos, if you will. And in Revelation 15, the angels don't just say, they don't just declare, but they sing that Christ is the king of the nations. Christ is the king of the nations, but what does it mean that Christ is the king of the nations? I mean, really, a quick scan of the top headlines of this week uh, seems to call that into question, doesn't it? Uh, It's not apparent that Christ is king of the nations with the crisis in Israel-Palestine or the crisis in uh, Ukraine-Russia or the crisis in Washington, D.C. I'll let you pick your favorite on that one. Uh, Does it seem like Christ is the king of the nations? Is it apparent or is that something that we simply tell ourselves? a religious version of counting to 10, if you will. What does it mean that Christ is the king of the nations, particularly as war and hostility rages on in our world and in our nation's capital and even in our own souls, it seems? I think Isaiah's words to God's people who are awaiting the first coming of the Messiah, the first advent, if you will, uh, might have something to teach us about who Christ is and how he is the king of the nations. And so hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter two, picking up in verse one, and also a little smattering from Isaiah 66. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos or Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes between many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore." O house of Jacob, let it come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then now over to Isaiah 66, picking up in 18. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to bow before me, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning's text finds us in the opening and the closing chapters of Isaiah in the time before the exile of God's people and after the return of God's people from exile. A lot has taken place in between. Three major empires rise and fall, which has direct implications for Israel and Judah during this very, very tumultuous time in their world and in their their life together as um, a community of God's people. Assyria in order, Babylon and Persia, uh, Reverend Dillaman gave us a glimpse of Assyria in the first week of our series. Assyria was the dominant empire of the ancient Near East, one of the first major empires of the ancient Near East. Uh, The book of Isaiah actually opens with a warning to repent for idolatry and injustice so as to stave off Assyrian invasion. 
but that repentance never happens. And eventually Assyria rode against King Hoshea. We read all about that in 2 Kings 17. It is a brilliant, interesting chapter of the scriptures. Now, rather than fight a war that he knew he would lose, uh, Hoshea kind of sort of bows the knee. He decides to become a vassal to Assyria. Uh, we read that in the first verse. If we could go up to, how about we go to the map? We'll do that. Uh, now, terms of the treaty, terms of the vassal treaty between Assyria um, and Hoshea were simple. Pay your tribute every year and don't try to ally yourself with Egypt. Two simple things, two simple rules for life. Uh, now, what does Hoshea do? He decides to stop paying tribute and make an alliance with Egypt. Uh, so Assyria invades the land. Hoshea himself is carried off into an Assyrian prison. And by 722 BC, after a three-year siege on the city of Samaria, the capital, uh, Assyria captures Israel's capital um, and then engages in their policy, their, tra their tra uh, traditional policy for kind of destabilizing a place, which was something called double deportation, which basically meant they sent a bunch of people, the 10 tribes of Israel, scattered them throughout the empire. And then they brought a bunch of people from throughout the empire and settled them in the land of Israel throughout Samaria and, and likewise. Uh, by 669 BC, a new king of Assyria basically finished the deportation process, effectively preventing any future rebellions. Uh, now, that's Assyria. But eventually, eventually, after Assyria, another empire emerges, a stronger empire emerges, the empire of Babylon. You can see them on the map just below, uh, just below Assyria. Uh, they emerge, they take advantage of Assyria's internal squabbles over who will be king after uh, their king dies. And eventually, with some help from some people called the Medes, they take the capital city of Assyria. That is Nineveh. Now, with Assyria out of the way, this creates a power vacuum. And who would try to fill that power vacuum other than Egypt? Uh, Egypt tries to fill it, but the Babylonians defeat them, push them further back, and to prevent any future rebellions from Egypt, Babylonians decided that they were going to secure all of the territories near Egypt. Now, who's smack dab in the middle of all the territories near Egypt? Judah. Yeah, yeah, Judah. Israel kind of sort of doesn't exist anymore, but Judah. Yeah, great answer. So Judah's right in the middle. King of Babylon comes to Judah, makes them a vassal, which means same thing as before. You will pay tribute to me every year. And who are you not to partner with? Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. Well, the people decide that paying tribute every year is super expensive because it is. You have a whole kingdom to run, people who need to eat. And so they try to get out of it. And who do they decide to partner with? Egypt, yeah. Egypt is like a subtle little, like, they're just like, they're involved in like all the conflicts in the land. It's really crazy. But because they're so far off from everything, they kind of get away with it. So anyway, uh, so Jeremiah uh, warns the people even. God says to the people through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, do not go to Egypt for help. Rely on the Lord. Wait for the Lord. We just sang it. Wait for the Lord. Seek your help from the Lord. But despite warning, they do it anyway. It backfires. And then Babylon invades Judah. How many? Not one time, not twice, but three times. Three times. They not only conquer Judah, but they move to completely destabilize it. They exile the best and the brightest of the people. They sack the city. They decimate, uh, go back to the map, please. They decimate the temple and they leave nothing, nothing but a stump, if you will, in Judah. So that's Babylon. But eventually another empire emerges, a stronger empire emerges because Cyrus, the king of Persia, decides that Persia will no longer pay tribute to, uh, to the Medes. Uh, the Persians are on the other side of the Persian Gulf there down at little, like, the little gulf in the, in the, in the, the map there. Uh, so it takes him a few years, but Cyrus eventually conquers the Medes and then the Lydians, and then he stores it all up for the big dogs. He goes after the Babylonians, and then after defeating the Babylonians, he changes his name on Instagram to Cyrus the Great, uh, and then, <laughs> and then here's what's so fascinating about Cyrus. Uh, his policy was that instead of having people deported and instead of exiling people and tearing down their temples, that he would actually, to engender loyalty, send people back home and not just send people back home, but give them resources so that they could rebuild their cities and rebuild their temples, which is precisely where we find God's people at the end of the book of Isaiah, rebuilding the city of Judah and Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. Uh, this policy allowed for, um, allowed for them to build the most vast empire of any empire to date uh, and to protect it, a military of about 2.5 million soldiers expertly trained for battle against foreign enemies, 
millions of war horses, billions of pieces of armor and artillery, uh, and they lived happily ever after until they fell to the Macedonians under the reign of Alexander the Great. And on and on and on it goes. The point, empire and the pursuit of it seems to be quite fragile and fleeting, does it not? How exactly is Jesus the king of the nations then when the nations seem to be conquering each other and attacking each other and even conquering and attacking God's people? And yet, the vision Isaiah shares in Isaiah 2 is of the nation streaming, flowing to the mountain of God, not with war horses and chariots, not to lay siege, but with curiosity, he says, with curiosity specifically about the Torah or about the law it reads in the text. And a Torah here can be translated um, as, um, you could translate it as law or statutes or commandments. Uh, there's some really, really smart Old Testament people who say that you should probably go with something like wise instruction. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a fun little book. Um, it's so old that it literally smells like truth, which also sometimes smells like mold. Um, and, <laughs> and in it, Jensen argues that Torah in Isaiah should be translated as wise instruction. Uh, it's wisdom, um, the wisdom of the Lord that they're coming to the mountain of God to learn. Now, where have you heard this idea of Isaiah as wise instruction before? Have you heard that before in the Torah itself, Deuteronomy 4? In Moses' last sermon to the people, he tells them their faithfulness to the Torah is not just about the rules and the commandments. It would be their wisdom and their understanding before the nations who would marvel at them and their God. In Isaiah, Isaiah says, picking up on this, that the nations don't just marvel from afar, but they actually stream to the mountain of God to inquire of this Torah, to learn the way of the Lord, to walk in his paths. It's almost like God's original plan all along was that his people would be almost something like priests to the nations rather than merely to the temple. But the people abandon their priestly vocation to the nations and instead seek to be just like them. In fact, this is precisely what the prophet Samuel says to them in 1 Samuel 8. Uh, when God's people come to Samuel and they essentially say to him, you are old and your kids are the worst. Um, not politically correct there. You're old, your kids are the worst. So appoint us a king like the other nations and he will judge us. And Samuel is greatly displeased and he goes to the Lord and God says to him, Samuel, relax. Give in to what the people have asked for you. Because they have not rejected you, what they have rejected is me as king over them. You see, Yahweh is their king. And they want instead a human king like the other nations. Notice that phrasing the text says, uh, like the other nations. Samuel obliges, but then he tells them what a king like the other nations is going to be like. He's going to be like the other rulers in the ancient Near East, fighting endless wars for dominance and security. He'll expend his energy building a vast army, Samuel says. He'll take your sons and make them his soldiers, Samuel says. He'll take your daughters to cook and bake for his large army. He'll take the best of your fields and your crops and your servants and your livestock by which you provide for your own family to provide for his empire. He'll tax your livelihood to support his kingdom. And when you have been taxed down to the skin of your teeth and you cry out to God, God will answer because he gave you precisely the desire of your heart this day. Now, this might sound harsh, but it's actually rather prophetic. In fact, the story of the monarchy in Israel and Judah bears this out because it's the story of a failed monarchy. The scriptures describe a trail of bad monarchs, something like 42, if my math is correct, and only nine of them are considered good. The rest of them um, lead the people into idolatry and injustice rather than to the wise instruction of the Torah, to their wisdom and understanding before the nations. And as a result, the land is full of idolatrous practices. They don't just get a king like the other nations, they get the gods of the other nations too from the surrounding nations, and God, God says through the prophet Isaiah, their idolatry leads to rampant social sin and injustice, the prophet, says, uh, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 1. It's almost like the people abandon their priestly vocation to the world only to seek to enter the empire Olympics with the rest of the nations. And their rulers, who are just like the other kings, lead the way. The point is that it's not just empires that are fragile and fleeting but apparently the monarchy is fragile too. Which is what makes Isaiah's vision so striking. Because in it, the nations are streaming to the mountain of God, again, not to sack the city, not to destroy the temple, but to inquire of the Lord. 
And they don't just marvel at God and God's people from afar. They come to the mountains you see for themselves. They even allow Yahweh to settle their disputes. And as a result, they no longer need to learn war, Isaiah says. They turn then their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They turn props of war and death and destruction into agricultural tools that bring life and fruitfulness in the land. So how is Christ the king of the nations then? Because, Isaiah says, he is the peace that they've been looking for all along. He is the desire, the true desire, the core desire of the nations for peace and security. St. Augustine famously says these very words in his book, City of God. It's a marvelous little tome that he creates um, in the decades after the fall of Rome um, into, it doesn't matter, but <laughs> to the next group. Um, and in it, he's essentially um, responding to the critique of the Romans that the reason they fell was because they converted to Christianity rather than honoring the Roman gods or the pagan gods. And Augustine, not ever wanting to lose an argument, writes about a thousand pages to prove them wrong. Um, but over the course of these pages, what he ends up saying, he points out something really, really magnificent for us. He says um, that the problem at the core of Rome the Roman Empire and all the other empires before them and all the other empires after them, is that their hearts were hungry for the ultimate peace of God. But they settled for earthly peace. And they didn't just settle for earthly peace, they settled for earthly peace as though that were the only thing worth pursuing. The earthly peace should be pursued. It's things like food and water and, sh water and shelter and security and purpose and meaning, but, and those things sustain life and even make it enjoyable. But when that pursuit becomes idolatrous or disordered, when it's pursued as though it's the only thing that matters, it ends up creating only a mere shadow of peace. A mere shadow because it's marked, Augustine says, by constant striving and anxiety, by endless wars, by endless assassination attempts and betrayal at home. And even when they manage to triumph, Augustine says, even their victories, he says, we're marked by a kind of fragile, fragile fragility like glass that if you like hold it in your hand too tightly, it just breaks in your hands and shreds your skin. The earthly peace of Assyria succumbs to the earthly peace of Babylon, which succumbs to the earthly peace of Persia, which succumbs to the earthly peace of the Macedonians and on and on and goes. How flimsy, how fragile the whole thing is, Augustine says. How is Christ the king of the nations? Because the scriptures and the Christian tradition say that Christ is the very peace that we actually desire. He is the true desire of all the nations, if they only knew the way. Thankfully, the time has come to gather the nations, the prophet says in the closing chapter. You see, rather than leave the people groping in the dark, our triune God gathers not just Israel, but all of the nations at the mountain of God. But here's a fun little gem. God invites them not just to gather in worship, but he accepts them into the priesthood. The unclean Gentiles become a part of the priesthood of God. Notice how beautiful this picture is. Jew and Gentile gathered together to worship, but also given the purpose as priests to declare his glory to the nations. Don't miss how incredible this is. Because traditionally, the gods of your, your gods in the ancient world were divinities associated with your land. And the only way that you ever started to worship another god is if another nation conquered your nation and then therefore their god was considered conquering your god. But the god of Israel doesn't work that way because he's not like the other gods of the other nations. Instead, the God of Israel demonstrates through them that he is the God of the cosmos, not through conquering flesh and blood nations, but through conquering for them sin, death, and darkness. How is Christ the king of the nations? Because he is the embodiment of God's move to gather the nations to himself. In Christ, even the pagans and the Gentiles can become not just God-fearers on the periphery of the religious system, the priests at the center of its worship and its mission to the nations. I'll close with this. Um, Nate Ross and I have been looking ahead already to the next ministry year and the goals for that next ministry year. Thanks again for your survey responses. They actually give us a lot to kind of prayerfully think through and work from. Um, and in addition to your survey responses, we've been looking at some data from Gallup and Pew and Barda. Um, and I found this little chart uh, pretty interesting. If we could go to that chart from Barna. Um, Barna asked both Christians and non-Christians what they most desired from spirituality. And the top response across the board um, was inner peace 
which I found kind of interesting. Um, inner peace, if you can see that. Um, a little less so for non-Christians, but on average, about 37% of people picked that as their top choice. And I think that says something about the state of our world, doesn't it? Or the state of our world geopolitically, but also maybe even, if we're honest, about our own hearts and our own anxieties and our own fears and maybe even our own restlessness as we navigate life in all of its ups and downs. Isaiah's closing image is of the Gentile nations bowing with Israel before God in worship. And in doing so, the prophet points to a direct relationship between what or who we worship and the kind of peace that's uh, possible for us. Following this thread, Thomas Aquinas says, and that true and perfect peace is found when our souls find their rest in God and when all one's desires are united in the sovereign good that is our triune God, our souls find rest. Put another way, you might say that peace is when we allow day by day for the love of Christ poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit to put our souls back together, that is our mind, our will, our affections, our desires, all of it back together, such that our ultimate desire is not in fragile, finite, fleeting things that can break if we squeeze them too hard, but in Christ alone. In that, something like unity of soul emerges, a kind of unity within us, or the word peace. And it surpasses earthly peace or even inner peace because it is specifically the peace of Christ rather than the restlessness of our earthly pursuits. Here's what I mean by that super, super quick story. Years ago, I uh, joined a college campus, and one of the first people I met uh, was a sociology professor who greeted me and was enthusiastic about me being there and um, welcomed me and introduced me to people. And eventually, though, um, that relationship went awry. Uh, this particular person came to my boss and I with a proposal for how we could lead our campus through um, just a bunch of just like internal fighting about things that it just it doesn't even really matter anymore. And um, my boss and I didn't think it was the best way to help people connect to each other and learn to be back in community without all the conflict or move through the conflict well. And so we said no. Uh, well, that answer did not sit well with this person um, in the office over dinner. Eventually, it became a campus-wide conflict, um, a campus-wide conflict complete with protesting, numerous protests, um, demands for certain people to be fired, my boss and I included. It just got really, really ugly really, really fast. And during all of this, I was working with my boss and other people to try to figure out what's the best way to help our campus kind of move through, through all of this. And I was also a little bit annoyed and angry. And at one point, I just kind of like toss up a prayer. And I do mean toss up a prayer. It was not the highest prayer. My eyes weren't closed. My hands weren't clasped. It was just like, God, this is your thing, whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> amen. <laughs> uh, so when you know it, a couple months later, I am here in West Michigan. I'm in seminary. I'm at Western Sim. I'm here for my week-long intensive and I'm on the shuttle um, with my massive suitcase full of Sperry's and textbooks. That's what I collect. And uh, I'm fidgeting with my suitcase, and I hear this voice in the corner um, from the other corner of the airport shuttle. And it's, uh, well, my gosh, what a surprise. And I'm like, oh, God, no, no, no. <laughs> Please don't let it be that person. I look up, and it's him. And um, I do that thing that your voice does when you're, like, kind of, like, anxious and, like, of all the things. And I'm like, hi, how's it going? Like, it's, like, super high. <laughs> and um, eventually, I'm like, well, where are you headed? And he's like, I'm heading back to Providence. I'm like, oh, yeah, me too. And I'm hoping. I'm like, I'm flying Southwest. I'm hoping that he's flying, like, United or something. We will not see each other until we get back to campus. When you know it, he's flying Southwest. And so if you've flown Southwest before, you know that they don't assign you seats, which means that... You kind of get to pick where you want to sit. And when you know it, he was one of those people who pays extra so he can board early. And so he has a seat first. And I get to decide if I'm going to sit next to him on the flight back or if I'm going to sit somewhere more enjoyable, like the back of the plane near the bathrooms. And, <laughs> and so I decided to take one for the team. And I sit next to him. And um, I'm struggling to open my water bottle, my $10 water. And I, I hand it over to him to open. But he's a professor. He doesn't work with his hands, so he can't open it either. And uh, <laughs> we laugh about that and a bunch of other things. And then eventually we just start kind of talking about life stuff. And, um, and then we start talking a little bit about the campus and how he's feeling. And, and we start talking about his family. And eventually, as I'm listening to him, I find my prayer being answered for God's will to be done because in my own heart, um, I'm able to hear this like drumbeat through his life of restlessness. Um, so restless that he is like a Tasmanian devil on the campus, quite literally, I don't mean that pejoratively, but just restless, restless and chaotic. 
Um, I wish I could say that at the end of that conversation, hours sharing a plane together, we went back to campus and we were best friends. We weren't. Um, it just didn't go that way. And um, we continued to be in conflict with each other. He resigned a few months later. He went to another college campus. And um, eventually a friend of mine comes in my office and he puts a, a newspaper clipping on my desk and he's like, you're not gonna believe this. And I pick it up and it's the same guy, bullhorn, a bunch of people behind him on the next campus. And I'm like, yep, nope, I can totally believe that. That's exactly consistent with, <laughs> with, with how this person is wired right now. Restlessness, restlessness and chaos that emerges from within us, um, that animates the way that we show up in the world is the same kind of restlessness that animates the nations, um, Isaiah says. It's the same kind of restlessness that animates the, the constant quest for building of empire, Augustine says. But you and I don't have to live a story of restlessness. It's not the story that we inhabit. That's not the story that we've heard. That's not the story that's changed our lives. You see, for us, we get to live a story of peace, an already not yet peace, but a story of peace because the Christ who is the king of the nations is the Christ who has made peace between God and humanity and between human beings too by the blood of the cross. And through his Holy Spirit within us, he brings about peace within us and through us as a sign and a foretaste of the peace that is to come when his kingdom has fully come. At Advent, we get to rejoice in the peace of Christ. And we get to lament the places where it doesn't yet exist. And we get to get fresh fuel for joining God's work of making that peace wherever we possibly can so far as it depends on us. And ultimately though, we look forward to the peace that our God will firmly establish himself. What you and I actually want, what the nations actually want, what we pray for, what we desire more than anything, even when we don't know how to get there, then is for God to unite our minds and our wills and our affections and our desires in him alone. And in doing so, we find the ultimate peace that is the desire, not just for the nations, not just for the communities of people who are battling for domination, but even for our own souls as well. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that even when we betrayed you and your love for us, that you saw the possibility of peace with us and that you were willing to send the son into the world to die to secure that peace. We are so grateful that you loved us and chose us and that didn't just love us and choose us, but sent us as your priests into the world to be conduits of your peace and people who proclaim the peace that is to come. Thank you for knitting our souls back together slowly, day by day. Thank you for the transformation that is possible in you. And thank you for all the ways, all the ways that even now we get to see the glimpses of you putting not just our souls, but our world back together. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Friends, in our response this morning, I invite you to stand and we're going to sing, He Shall Reign. Let's sing together.
if this morning you find that your heart is heavy with grief or lament or loss or even restlessness, we invite you to pray underneath the cross this morning with a few people before you go. One final blessing for us this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.